Hello, welcome to the first Gallybegger podcast. This is a recording with Alex Phoebe at the Greenwich Literary Festival on the 15th of June 2019. Alex talks about his modernist classic books, Playthings and Lucia, and also his forthcoming novel, Mordew. This is our first podcast, so I hope you can indulge a few echoes and pops. Alex is always worth listening to in all circumstances, so please stick with us. Okay, let's get stuck in. of Gallybegger Press and the publisher, therefore, of Alex Phoebe and of Playthings. I can't even remember the year now, but one happy day, Playthings when was arrived it? on my desk. 2015? 2015, something like that. Yeah, sounds right. Uh, so, four years ago now. And I read Playthings and was astonished by it and the writing. And I did have a crazy moment where I was kind of like, this book is so extreme and so intense. And I, I don't know, have any of you read Playthings? Do, do you know where we are? Okay, great. After this, you will be able to go and buy it. Yeah. And yeah. Have, have the experience that I had. Um, and one of the experiences you have reading Playthings is feeling like you are very much in the situation that it's character who Alex will tell you about in a minute is going through which is a pretty extreme dark undiagnosed in modern terms Mm. mental breakdown and you get to the end of the book feeling like you have lived that and I had a second where I was like well how can I explain this to the world It's, it's too difficult and almost too brilliant and then I thought well what am I here for as a publisher if not to bring out masterpieces that the world has to come to terms with in a way. And yeah. You have um, form in that area though. We have, we have form. I mean, that's, we're a small press and we're lucky in that every book we put out is a risk and we exist to put out books like Playthings is what I'm saying and authors like Alex. And actually it turned out I was completely wrong because the book did really well. Uh, it was shortlisted for the Welcome Prize. It got the great reviews that it deserved. It was published in America and was got a great review in there. It's been just been published in um, Latin America too, yeah. in Spanish, mm-hmm. which is good. Although they still haven't sent me a copy. <laughs> I was interviewed about it uh, by Kit Maud. Kit contacted me. Do you, uh, uh, and he's, he said, oh, what made you write it in the first person? And I was like, well, I didn't. <laughs> and I suddenly had this kind of really nervous feeling that the translator, without telling me, had translated the entire book into the first person, uh, which is considered a, a faux pas, I think, in general, <laughs> in the translating world, to change the grammatical person of an entire book. But it turned out he just got into himself into a model. Okay. Yeah. And so, why don't, we, why don't we tell them... Yeah, should I do that? ...about play things? <laughs> and then, so. do you want to give a quick intro and 
read a passage. Okay, so Playthings is about the mental illness of uh, a German judge uh, from the 19th century, early 20th century, um, called Daniel Paul Schreber, um, who was a real-life person uh, and the writer of an extremely famous um, case study in what well, has come on, come to be called schizophrenia, but uh, was then called uh, paranoia. He, he was a, um, wasn't a patient of Freud's, uh, but Freud wrote a lot about his case. He wrote a book called Memoirs of My Nervous Illness, which Freud psychoanalyzed, um, and which led him to come up with the idea that um, Schreber's illness and paranoia in general uh, is a defense against sexual desire for the father. Right, it's one of those things, it's a long, complicated series of um, uh, equations, you'd have to call them, uh, in which uh, Freud makes this argument. I don't really agree with him um, on that. <laughs> I don't think many people do now. Uh, and also Freud was kind of uh, lambasted throughout the 20th century for having done a psychoanalytic uh, analysis of someone he'd never met, uh, which is, again, not considered to be a good idea or good practice in general. Uh, Freud, uh, Schreber's um, delusions, he suffered uh, paranoid delusions, and they were of a particular type, uh, religious. Uh, he thought that God was persecuting him. Uh, and he was persecuting him because uh, Schreber's nerves had reached such a pitch of excitation, his physical nerves, that they'd become bonded with God's nerves. And so fascinating was he to God that he was drawing God down from heaven, right? And uh, if it continued, uh, he worried, then the entire world would be destroyed and uh, there was nothing he could do. So in order to fix that, God um, wanted him to lose his mental faculties to become a kind of nothing human being so that um, he wouldn't feel so fascinated. But every time he did anything and excited Schreber even further and God came closer, um, and then Schreber believed that so terrible as this situation got that everybody in the rest of the world was now dead and that God, in order to send him mad, had, um, com was convincing him that everybody was still alive by creating them every time he turned his back. So uh, when he turned away, there was no one. And then when he turned back, God had created fleetingly improvised men right, to convince him that everybody was still alive. Moreover, and this is the bit that Freud latched onto, uh, unsurprisingly, uh, he felt that God was turning him into a woman so that he could impregnate him with a new race of human beings that he would have to give birth to. It's quite an interesting story, generally. It's one of those things that I like. As you'll notice, I'm quite interested in the uh, interplay between real things and fantasies, right? uh, whatever those fantasies happen to be. Uh, and because I have a philosophical background, my general feeling is that the ontological and epistemological differences between real things, fantasized things, and mental illness are nowhere near as uh, concrete as people imagine. And in fact, uh, there may not even be a substantial difference between someone's fantasy life, someone's uh, delusions, and someone's real life uh, that we could stand behind and, and own as human beings. Consequently, the way we treat people who fantasize, whether they do that through um, writing genre fiction, for example, or from being uh, mentally ill, uh, or from uh, having worldviews that we don't agree with, uh, rational people's attempts to manipulate those people are largely unethical. So what I tend to write about is people who have unusual worldviews and the way the world treats them. And that's fair. 
so this is a book about uh, how Daniel Paul Schreiber was uh, incarcerated um, at the behest of the German state uh, in an asylum for the last years of his life uh, against his wishes uh, and against his desire to go home. The first book he wrote, uh, Memoirs of a Nervous Illness, was sufficient to get him released from a previous breakdown um, because he argued that he was rational in his beliefs and could prove he was rational uh, because he wrote this long-form um, defense of his ideas and that he was at least as rational as anyone else with religious beliefs. Right? You can't prove the existence of the Christian God, for example, uh, and consequently, he shouldn't be forced to prove the existence of his God. Uh, you can't show uh, demonstrable um, evidence for the existence of any of the religious ideas that his state held uh, as part of their, their constitution. So consequently, he shouldn't be asked to provide that evidence either. All that you could look for was, uh, was he rationally approaching his ideas or not? And because he was a judge, he was out of... He was able to rationally lay out all of the things that had happened to him and give uh, what seemed to be a good argument that these were at least as real to him as any other religious ideas were real to anybody else. And that worked, and he got sent home, right? Uh, despite the fact that he didn't disavow the fact that God uh, was turning him into a woman. Um, that lasted for about six or seven years. Then his wife had a stroke, uh, and he um, had another breakdown, after which he was never released because essentially he went into a kind of catatonic coma, uh, which very rarely did he come round. And this book is written to the space behind that. And without further ado, I shall read from it, <laughs> some of it. I was going to read the end, but now I've given, because I always like to annoy people by reading the end. <laughs> and it's a nice bit, I really like the end, because it's the happy part. <laughs> but I'm not going to anyway, because you might want to buy it, so I suppose I have to tempt you by telling you what happens in the beginning. Um, so I'll give you the beginning. This is where he's not insane as yet, um, but he's anxious about the fact that um, his house is too quiet. Um, I have to put my glasses up because I didn't bother getting very focal lenses put in them. Right. This, by the way, this first line, just so you know, the Spanish uh, <laughs> reviewers are now saying is one of the great opening lines of the 21st century. So oh. you can decide for yourself. It may, it may work better in Spanish. <laughs> um, see, now I'm embarrassed to read it. I'm reading it to see if I, even I think it's one of the great opening lines <laughs> of the 21st century. Let's see. <laughs> It's not a funny book, just so you know. I'm like, sometimes I can't help but laugh, but most of it's quite dry. <laughs> Coal dropped through the chute, sending a hint of black rising up the stairs into the hall. Right, that's it, that's the opening line. You can analyse that. Yeah, think about that. Right. This book has also been described... <laughs> I'm interrupting myself. This book has also been described as the best neuro-novel ever written by the Times Literary Supplement. A neuro-novel is a novel that deals with someone with an unusual mental state. So I think that pretty much includes almost the entirety of 20th century literature. So the TLS seems to reckon that this book is the best, let's just say the best novel <laughs> written since uh, 1850, I would say. <laughs> it's up to you to decide that. Cold dropped through the chute, sending a hint of black rising up the stairs into the hall. Schreiber stopped, framed in the archway into the drawing room and swallowed and took a deep breath. Nothing to be concerned about. Quite the opposite, really. Some coal dust mingling with the scent of fresh flowers. The post laid in a fan on the hall table. Dim light. The opaque mist of bacon fat heated past transparency onto smoking and spitting. Simple matters. 
From downstairs in the kitchen came the crack and hiss of a hot iron skillet banged down onto a tabletop, perfectly ordinary. He brought himself up straight. Zabina, Trevor called. Zachan? Nothing. He went back and leaned through the doorway to downstairs. Cook, my good woman, is it really so important? Cook replied in that hard, dumb-by manner she had, uh, she had, with only half the words spoken clearly, so that the other half had to be guessed at. Something about lunch, the club, a promise. Very well. Zabina, Cookie's asking after you. Nothing. Was she sleeping? Zabina, nothing. He sniffed and walked down the hall to where the parlour door stood closed. No sound of her in the parlour. Wouldn't she be humming a tune or whistling? He didn't hear either thing, nor any quiet snoring in their place. He turned his head so that his ear was nearer the door and he listened harder. Thirty seconds passed. Nothing. Cook cursed, an unruly pan of boiling stock bubbling over. By the parlour there was only silence. Should he open the door and go in? He straightened his waistcoat. There was a school of thought amongst the men of his acquaintance that the owner of a house had the right to enter any room of his choice. On the other hand, there was a competing school, advocated primarily by the married men, that said if a husband was allowed anywhere in the home it was only on sufferance, and that he shouldn't dare go into a room he is suspected of being solely occupied by his wife, the reasoning being that if the wife was not already in her husband's company, then she quite probably did not wish to be. Coughed and turned and listened again. Nothing. On the wall in front of him there was a portrait of his grandfather. It was done in browns and greens and muted reds, dingy through decades of hanging, sun-faded, almost lost amongst the jumble of still lives and theatre playbills. He was standing with one hand in his breast pocket and the other resting on his writing table. Trevor reached out and wiped a line of dust from the picture frame. Poor old grandpapa. He licked a corner of his handkerchief and ran it gently over the gold-finished wood. When he was done, he looked back at the old man. It seemed as if he had receded from view into the background of the picture, into the wall, his modesty overwhelmed by the gold frame and the bacon fat and the coal dust. Standing at the old man's feet was Schreber's father. Schreber lifted his chin and sniffed. A tick. One that an observer might have recalled seeing when Schreber made his way from his chambers to the courtroom or earlier, when he was brought before his father in knee shorts, pressed, with the backs of his ears rubbed red and stinging with soap. Zabina, have you gone deaf, dearest? You're needed. Nothing. Should he risk it, knowing precisely her response if she was busy? He sighed and coughed and did not move. Beside his grandfather on the wall was Zabina's father, Herr Bear, a different type of man altogether round-faced and smiling, exuberant, extravagant. Even in the etching, this man gave off an air of life and energy. It was an advertisement from a theatre in this very city, in Dresden, and he, the leading actor, stood mouth open, singing, a little ridiculous, perhaps. Schreber turned away from him, and there now was the door handle. Sachin, he said. What was she up to, behind this door? There was prickling on the back of his neck. There was thickness gathering behind his eyes. Tiredness, nothing more. Just a normal day like every other. She would be taking tea and attending to her affairs as he had been attending to his, distracted, both of them, by the business of the day, the arrangements for the party, 
the news. If Cook needed something, then what of it? What was so demanding? Wasn't it her place to wait on them? Anyone would think it was the other way round. He shouldn't even think of disturbing Sabina with this woman's request. Behind this door he would find her perfectly well, and she would be testy with him. He was thoughtless and inconsiderate. So much she had said many times, and now he was thinking about bothering her, distracting her from her important business, very foolish. She would have the table laid out with a hundred things, cards and napkins and napkin rings in bone, and she would be so busy with her decisions about this and that, things husbands have no comprehension of, that to expect a reply, even if she heard him, was ridiculous, utterly dim-witted. If he turned this handle and opened the door, he would see her, standing, leaning over the table like a general, moving her troops across the map. When he saw her, when he said her name, she would wheel around to face him, and her jaw would be clenched and her brow knotted. Yes, he would have to apologise. But then why was it so quiet? Zavina! Nothing. He meant to turn the handle, but when he tried to do it, his hand gripped the metal until his knuckles poked up, as if they intended to breach the skin. What if he caught the thought and moved his hand back from the handle onto his waist, onto his waistcoat, and he smoothed the firm, round curve that the passing years and Cook's facility with pastry had built between them? Don't be an old fool. Just an ordinary day. Pull yourself together. Too little sleep and too much milk at breakfast. Nothing to be feared from this place. His home hadn't every day proved so much to him a thousand times. He blinked and sniffed and smoothed, and before he knew it, his hand was making progress through the air towards the handle. Zabina, what are you up to, my dear? If the sounds from the street were not convincing, if they seemed theatrical, then what of it? If the walls seemed thin, knocked up from plaster of Paris, then what of it? Wasn't there also the newspaper beside the post? Wasn't there Burlov? carried unconscious from the Reichstag, the 20 excess invitations that the girl had foolishly requested from the printer, useless except for notes, since the day and time were there as plain as day on the front. Weren't those things there too, the flowers, the telegraphs from Zabina's friends agreeing to come? If the pictures were arranged one way or the other, then so what? He could hear Cook downstairs working. He could hear her irritation in the banging and clattering of pans. Didn't this offset the strangeness? Of course it did. He sniffed and blinked and stood tall and reached for the door handle. I'll leave it there. You'll have to buy it if you want to find out what happened. <laughs> You're supposed to clap now. <laughs> uh, so, one of the things that, that was beginning to happen there and happens... Yeah, it's quite a slow-paced book. Throughout the book is that Schreiber is convincing himself that things are okay and convincing the reader more to the point. And so one of the experiences you have as a reader, especially the first time you read it, and I recommend reading it more than once, is you go along with Schreber and you buy his arguments because they are very good, rational kind of explanations of what's happening to him. Mm -hmm. And when he becomes incarcerated, essentially, uh, in an asylum, you feel that, he is right that he should be let out. Sure. Um, and I suppose one of, what I'm wanting to ask is, where do you see that line, or if there is indeed a line between Schreber being able to make these arguments and making sense and being in a situation where he, is, he has essentially lost his mind? Mm. 
Uh, that's a tricky one. I mean, for Schreber in the book, anyway. I mean, Schreber in real life, it, it's, it's relatively obvious that he was too ill to be looked after at home. Uh, but for the book version of Schreber, it's, it's the question that, is, is that I'm trying to constantly get at is what responsibility do we have as people to each other? Um, and that's what well, I'm always looking at, really. And I think um, the movement between seeming sane and appearing insane uh, is a kind of negotiation between the things that we have to do for each other in order to allow everybody in the world to live cheerfully. It shouldn't be that you need to pass a reality test, it seems to me, in order for you to be treated ethically by the people around you, whether that happens to be the state or your friends or your family. And what I try and do in Playthings is to, is to problematize that boundary. Right? We, we uh, sympathize with Schreber, but eventually I start to bring in the women of his family, uh, which the psychoanalytic literature misses out. So his stepdaughter, um, Friedeline, comes to visit him, uh, and it's clear that Schreber doesn't understand how time is passing, because Friedeline thinks he's been there for over a year, and he thinks he's been there for about a fortnight. Uh, he keeps on promising to return home for Christmas, uh, and Christmas has already passed. Um, and Friedeline becomes very upset, and we can understand what his domestic life would be like, and the domestic life of people who have to put up with people whose uh, sense of reality isn't the same as theirs. Uh, Schreber's sister comes to see him, uh, and she also can't tolerate what he's been doing. He published a book that basically threw the entire Schreber family into shame and disregard. Um, Schreber's family historically were very well respected. His uh, great-grandfather was a famous botanist. You can still get pictures uh, that he drew of various plants, and he, he worked on animals too. Uh, they had chemists, lawyers. Schreber's own father was an extremely influential uh, child-rearing expert. Um, he invented a kind of series of medical gymnastics that were very popular in Germany. Schreber, even now, in Germany, an allotment is known as a Schrebergarten, which is a kind of uh, an outside space that um, the Schreber Institute, um, based on Schreber's father, advise people to go out into the yard and grow their own food, exercise, uh, just healthy to, mind and healthy body, etc. Mm. So to be clear, this is at the beginning of the 20th century. This is the late, um, Schreber's father was late 19th century. Yeah. Uh, and Schreber is, yeah, was, was going through his illness in just after 1900. Yeah. Uh, and so Schreber's father, um, you can kind of see where this is heading, yeah. became very influential in terms of... In child raising and the development of, of, of various systems that people have argued were precursors of fascism. Mm. I mean, one of the arguments that people make is that Schreber's ex, Schreber Sr., his extreme concentration on discipline, uh, it was all about physical discipline, physical jerks. He wouldn't allow children to sleep uh, on their sides, for example. So what he would do is t tie your hair, um, but to the bedpost and then tie your ankles to the bottom of the bed so that you didn't roll over. You weren't allowed sheets, you weren't allowed heating, you weren't allowed to wash in warm water, uh, you weren't allowed to do lots of different things. Any kind of performance of masculinity that wasn't 100% martial, you, you wasn't allowed. <laughs> uh, and as a child rearer, um, his oldest son shot himself uh, in his 20s. 
Schreber is the most famous schizophrenic uh, of the 20th of, uh, of all time. There's no, I don't think you need to qualify that statement. He is now the most famous schizophrenic of all time. He had three other daughters, uh, two of which became hysterics uh, and were hospitalized, and only one of which, Anna, who's in this book, um, managed anything like a, a life that could be considered livable. So he wasn't a great child, really, <laughs> the general gist of things. So one <laughs> yeah. of the other questions the book raises, mm. of course, is the influence of family, the influence of parents, and sure. also the other way around, because Schreber has been unable to be a parent, essentially. Yeah, that is the other thing that the psychoanalytic literature misses out. So Freud was such a, a kind of heavy hand on the Schreber story in real life uh, that his paranoia was always considered to be a precursor of, of homosexuality or some kind of defense against, as Freud would put it, homosexuality, and that's how he became ill, uh, essentially by uh, offsetting his desire, this sexual desire for his father's body onto a persecuting God. But more obvious, it would have seemed to me, if you looked into his actual biography, was the fact that um, Schreber and his wife had attempted many times to have children and those children either uh, were miscarried or died at birth. Um, so the idea, perhaps, that Schreber um, would be repopulating the world on the basis of the fact that he was a mother to supernatural children seemed to me to have more to do with that than perhaps it would have done to any defence against homosexuality. And I think it's only really the 20th century's general failure to figure women uh, in any way that led to a kind of history of psychoanalysis that ignored that fact. So this is also what the book is about. Essentially, the trauma that, um, that Schreber is going through is not the trauma of, of being repressed in his sexual desires, but is instead a trauma of, of having lost multiple children, which uh, is an appalling thing to have to suffer. So the, the novel has all these, as you can see, quite profound and searching ideas in it, but as a reader, the experience is very close and personal and intense. And when I first read it, I didn't know much about this background at all. No. And I think, in a way, not knowing that made the book even more overwhelming and kind of being plunged into this world and feeling so close to Schreber and not having a clue what was happening to him. Um, and it's really interesting that that person should think the novel was written in the first person. Mm. And I, you know, even without thinking about it at the beginning, was talking about how close you feel to Schreiber and how much you feel like you're experiencing the world from inside his head, which is a very unusual place. But you wrote it in the third person. I did, yeah. I don't like the first person so much. I mean, I don't know. It's, not, it's both a taste issue. I find it, the first person's constant like repetition of I the whole time to be distracting. Uh, and it's difficult to write, uh, that's the other thing. The constant I, 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 I. Um, it, it gets I-ish very quickly. But more to the point, um, it, if, if you remain in a very close third person, you can get that sense of drifting between things that are concrete and real and things that are fictionalized or, or fantasized and neurotic much more easily than you can do if you're obliged to constantly stick with an eye. It has its own challenges. You have to be pretty rigorous with the focalization. Um, but generally, I think most people are so used to reading third-person narratives that they will fade out of that pretty quickly uh, and, and start to empathize with the, with the protagonist 
which is what I want them to do. Mm -hmm. This is the whole, like this book, it's a work of empathy. You're obliged to be in Schaefer's mind and there's no escape for you. You're not just watching someone being ill. You become ill in the same while you're reading it uh, in the world that the book creates. You don't get to step out and say what's real and what isn't real because I don't give you that option because it's not provided for you. And I think there's a certain irony inherent in, in first-person narration because you know that's not you as an I, you know it's not me as an I, but then you're obliged to start thinking, well, who is this? Whereas in the third person, we're used to hearing stories about other people, told by other people. Uh, and you, you know, you kind of ego invest in that if you want to get Freudian uh, much more easily than you would do otherwise, I think. And it's important in that book specifically that you occupy Schreiber's mindset, even if you aren't him. So, yeah, so that's that. That's, that's, that's <laughs> playthings. Yeah. And so you wrote this novel where you're deep inside someone's mind, and the next novel, Lucia, yeah. the character, the titular character, Lucia, you barely get to see. So no, if you want that's to explain. True. Okay. So let's imagine that there's a kind of, kind of program that I'm trying to follow, my grand plan of things that I do in the world in terms of writing. There isn't one, and this is, but we'll make one up for the sake of it. Let's imagine that what I've done is tried to make you understand what it was like to be Daniel Paul Schreiber and play things. Um, then I went on and thought, well, I know what I'll do. I'll do the same thing for Lucia Joyce, who was James Joyce's daughter, uh, and who, um, not famously, for various reasons, uh, spent almost all of her life incarcerated in another mental asylum, this time in Northampton, uh, having been essentially abandoned by her family, including James Joyce, in Vichy, France, during the war. Um, some people would argue to an almost certain fate of euthanization. Uh, the Nazi T4 uh, program at that point during um, the war uh, euthanized intractable mental cases. Right, so they went up and down all the various asylums and sanatoria up and down the country, finding people who were ill and had no hope of being cured and gassed them. Right, that's essentially what they did. It's one of those things that people don't talk about terribly often, um, but it's certainly something that happened um, largely on eugenic grounds. Lucia Joyce was rescued from this fate by luck, essentially. They didn't happen to go to the sanatorium that she was on because they didn't manage to get that far uh, west. Because uh, there was a program just essentially of, of reps with gassing equipment that went across France, finding people and uh, finding people who were the leaders of sanitaria that were willing to take these uh, medical procedures and those who weren't. And um, they didn't get as far as Lucia Joyce. And when the war ended, she was still alive. And then she was eventually shipped back to Northampton, where she lived out the rest of her life with her mother and son, uh, brother at least, never visiting her, and receiving very, very few visitors and the occasional letter from Samuel Beckett. Her life was essentially raised, erased from the public record um, by the Joyce estate, uh, who have suppressed, not so much nowadays, because uh, things have gone out of copyright, um, but did, while the copyright was extant on various letters and books of James Joyce's, suppress mention of Lucia Joyce uh, unsuccessfully, largely. There was a good biography by Carol Schloss called To Dance in the Wake, uh, which played out uh, the story of Lucia Joyce's life. She was, a f she was an excellent dancer. In the 1920s and 30s, she was um, part of various avant-garde dance troupes, uh, but she, was also, she also suffered from fits of rage in scare quotes, in which ended up at one point with her throwing a chair at Nora Joyce 
uh, at a party uh, which ended up with her essentially then going off for treatment and never recovering. The treatments that Lucia Joyce suffered, which I do outline in this book, were weird and barbaric and unusually cruel. So she was uh, injected with pureed calves' fetuses. For example, that's one of the um, cures for being mentally ill, just, just in case that there are any of us who suffer from mental health problems, inject yourself with calves' fetuses and you'll be all right. Uh, apparently, that was one of the things that he did. Uh, they also um, gave various hydrotherapies. So one of which was to put you in a bath of very hot water and raise the water so hot that you eventually developed a fever. Uh, and then that fever would boil off your mental illness. And then when the fever subsided, you'd be fine. When that didn't work, they then froze it out of you. Okay, it's too much, too much heat in your system. So they put you in a series of ever colder baths uh, until that went away. Uh, and then the pharmaceutical industry got involved and basically hit you over the head with a chemical cosh of one type or another until you're okay. Or very, very quiet, at least, which was the alternative. Um, so Schreber going inside, coming to Lucia Joyce, you can't do the same thing because unlike Schreber, of whom there is a vast amount of material written, uh, there is almost nothing that you could use to write a story of, of Lucia Joyce. So what I decided to do instead was the opposite. But let's imagine as well that I'm trying to show off. I've tried to do this with great success in this book, and now I'm going to try and do something completely different, which is to do a portrait of someone in silhouette. Right? So I'm not going to deal with Lucia Joyce. I'm just going to deal with the edges of the story of Lucia Joyce. Uh, and I'm going to tell you about all the terrible men and what they did to her. And I'm going to tell you about the things that um, we know exist about her, but not directly. I'm only going to tell you the edges of those. There's a long stream in this, of which I'll read in a minute, some of. Um, dealing with uh, Hans Christiansen's The Little Match Girl. Right? It's a retelling from uh, a fractured part of Lucia Joyce's spirit's point of view. Lucia Joyce, you'll have to go with that. I'm not going to explain it, it takes too long. <laughs> if you buy the book, you'll be able to see it. Um, uh, Lucia Joyce um, was a dancer. She danced for Jean Renoir, uh, the film director, and she was in um, his version of The Little Match Girl. He made a film of The Little Match Girl, but her parts were cut, which seemed to me symbolic of her life in general. She was a brilliant dancer, uh, and her, the parts that she did for Jean Renoir never made the film, just in the same way that her entire life never made the public record. Um, so the aim of this book was to make you feel the same empathy that I made people feel for Schreber, but for Lucia Joyce, and also without mentioning Lucia Joyce, or without mentioning her in the same way that I did with Schreber. Uh, and it won a prize, didn't it? You may as well add that part. It did, <laughs> it did win a prize. It won the Republican Consciousness Prize this year. This month. Uh, let me read you. I brought some reviews along yeah, as well, because on, we're going to talk... This book presents difficulties to the reader very deliberately. Mm, it's more difficult than that one, certainly. Moral difficulties, and as a reader, you become complicit in certain things, and um, it's not it's not easy. And some people have found it very challenging. But people who have engaged with it on what I would t consider its own terms, obviously, mm. I'm biased because I'm the publisher and I love this book and think it's a masterpiece. But um, before we get into the difficulties, yeah, yeah, I thought um, we'd, I'd give you a sample of some of the things people have said. Um, so in the Irish Times, 
They said, Alex Phoebe's Lucia treats Lucia with an unusual degree of critical nuance and empathy. Empathy is very important. Um, setting the standard not only for intellectually uncompromising fictional biography, but also for rigorously questioning narrative experiment. And The Guardian said it was extraordinary. And they said, Phoebe is a writer possessed of unusual, indeed, extraordinary powers. Which that was true. <laughs> Levitation, that would be cool. Uh, his Lucia is a fully accomplished account of a troubled and troubling life. Most importantly, he does not spare himself. So this is, this is one of the mm. important points that uh, I'm glad the reviewer picked up on. From the accusations of appropriation and exploitation that are levelled throughout the book towards others, the chapters concerning Lucia are connected by short, apparently unrelated interludes about the opening up of a pharaonic tomb, which are clearly intended as a commentary on Phoebe's own procedures. Is he anything more than another ghoulish grave robber, a despoiler? First, the corpse is eviscerated. They enter the skull by breaking the ethmoid bone with a metal implement and stir the brain until it is liquid enough to be drained through the nose. The interior is then rinsed with palm wine and frankincense. Having no further use, the brain is discarded. <laughs> it's a, a nice sample of it. <laughs> but it's an allegory, that. What is it that stops you being this ghoulish grave robber? Or are you? I don't know, right? I mean, I can't remember. I was asked this question relatively recently. I can't remember why. It might have been at the Ipswich, the Suffolk Book League, right? And I, um, I don't think we as human beings are ethically clean. Right? I don't think that is a position you get to occupy. I don't think you, as a human being, sitting here, you, the audience, sitting here, get to sit there and think that by virtue of you wanting to be a good person, you are a good person. Your entire existence, my entire existence, let's stop talking about you in case you get uncomfortable, my entire existence as a human being is already unethical. Right? The very existence of you, no matter how nice a person you are, no matter how good you are, no matter how good you try to be, you're already, always already wrong, right? Your existence has ruined the planet. Your existence as a human being is predicated on hundreds and hundreds of years of brutal repression of other people. Appalling crimes that your culture is commit, has committed and continues to commit, right? Now, my feeling is that is something that we like to elide and efface at any given opportunity. I feel like a good person, therefore I am good. I try to be good, therefore I am good. Right? And I don't mean that sum, that equation works. Okay? So when people ask me, what right do you feel? What, how do you negotiate the ethical issues of that sort? I don't. Right? My feeling is that you honestly represent that thing that you are doing, right? whatever that happens to be. I think it's a form of, of um, dishonesty and cowardice for, you, for people to represent themselves as something other than ethically compromised, particularly here, particularly for us, particularly now. Right? And until people understand that they, no matter who they imagine they are, no matter how woke and right on they imagine they have their being in the world, their existence in the world is, a, is an ethical problem, right? whoever you happen to be. And then we can start making some kind of progress, right? We can understand what it is that we're doing wrong and then stop it. Because otherwise, you get into the situation where, as we're doing now, we're basically freewheeling to Armageddon. And no one has got anything to do <laughs> to stop it. We are all sitting here thinking, oh, Alex, well, that's a bit uh, 
Sam sometimes says you're self-flagellating. <laughs> Stop being so self-flagellating. <laughs> We're all sitting here thinking, well, he doesn't mean me. Just look at your clothes. Your clothes have been made by a Bangladeshi slave child, right? And if you don't think they have, you're wrong. <laughs> like, if you go, if you're a vegan, right, and you don't eat meat, I'm going to be a vegetarian, but you get all your, food, your vegan food from Sainsbury's, you're just subsidising their bacon, right? They get, to ch they get to charge you less for bacon because you're willing to pay £4.50 for some vegan cheese, right? That's, that's the way that works. You don't get to be... You don't get to be free of, of stain, right? And neither do I as a writer, right? and neither do you as a reader. If you come to this book, for example, thinking, I've heard of James Joyce, I've heard of Lucia Joyce, I want to read the story of Lucia Joyce, she was a woman with a troubled life, and I want to read about it for my pleasure while I sit and sip, sip a glass of, of wine <laughs> of an evening by the fire, then you're a bad person. <laughs> because we're all bad people, and we need to, we need to work on that. So, in the first instance, my feeling is that, that to assume some kind of position where you can uh, win ethical correctness is wrong. I don't think you can do that. Mm -hmm. Specifically with this book, I think it's a book about appropriation, which does appropriation. Right? It's impossible to talk about appropriation if you aren't at some point appropriative. And my, ex my kind of uh, way out of that, believe it or not, I've been working on the notion of appropriation since I was about 20. Right, it was the subject of my master's dissertation in aesthetics. The thing about appropriation is, if you're constantly looking at the effect that the appropriator has on the appropriated, then you're failing to also understand that there is an effect that the appropriated has on the appropriator. Right? When someone comes to try and appropriate your stuff, it, they take it into them. And you can poison that thing if you're the kind of person who is being appropriated, you can make it so that that thing changes the person who's doing the appropriation. And that may be a valid way of resisting the appropriator. Right? It's to stand there and say, okay, well, I'm going to take this thing and I'm going to allow it to be taken in the understanding that it has a kind of viral effect on that person's way of understanding the world. There's three work that I was doing on uh, rational appropriations of surrealism in aesthetics, right? and the function of surrealism was to change the mental state of the person who observed it, the bourgeois rational subject, will come to a surrealist work of art, and they would leave changed, generally disturbed, put in, in position of being uncomfortable. And this book does the same thing, I think. I mean, that's to answer your question. One, yeah. I don't think it's possible, and two, if it is, then it's, it's in, that, in that direction. So why don't you make us feel uncomfortable by reading Well, I can do, but I'm not sure that I could do. I'll read the tapeworm bit then. Well, <laughs> <laughs> uh, sometimes what I do is that the tapeworm bit isn't so bad. Generally, sometimes I offer up in a kind of spirit of Dada kind of uh, contingency. I offer up uh, to the room to suggest a number. Do you want to suggest a number? Someone read out a number between about one and about 450. Right, let's see what we've got. <laughs> 120 or 22? 22, well, got to get it right. Let's see, that's quite early on. It's quite grim things early on. It gets less grim as we go through. Ah, you picked a boring bit. That's no good. Let's go to the next. <laughs> this isn't democracy. <laughs> it isn't. All right, well, this, I'll read this next bit. So that's 127, but there were some pages in the middle. 122 was right at the end of the chapter, only half a paragraph. So this is part of the, um, uh, the Renoir material. Okay. 
Um, the spoil sport makes its first appearance unseen, but always there. Its presence is assumed from the change in atmosphere, a shrillness as if somewhere above a glass is rung, a wet finger around the rim, teasing out sound. Its trembling is visible in the image cast by its contents and shadowed on the tabletop. There's a vibration in the doorway, light creeping through the keyhole from the lines of shoddy joinery. It is the cracks of untreated, unpainted wood, dried and separating, pulled apart and left gaping, light coming in and not as the body passes on the other side. It pauses and passes, both their breaths held, sharing the expectation of something but hoping for different things, needing different things. Back to the mark, please. This wooden soldier does not feel the presence of the spoil sport, could never feel its presence, would never be spoiled even, even if it was taken and broken and its parts fed into a pencil sharpener and turned into shavings. One long curved, cur curved curl, blonde wood at the centre with a ribbon of red at the edge, the longest curl, the whole pencil taken in one turn, a new blade and new pencil turned slowly, slowly but never pausing, never letting a splinter catch. Hand-holding, fingers in the grooves, the hexagon imprint on the fingers, fingertips even flatter. The lead is painfully sharp, sharp as a compass point, sharp enough to blind, jabbed in the lens, inserted into the lens and pulled down into the iris so that it never recovered. Slit like a goat's eye, a vertical stripe of black, demonic, satanic, drawing the round eyes of all the others to it, school friend, employer, lover, forcing them to look and look away. Grind this soldier into sawdust and scatter him in the back room of a butcher's shop. Put him into the sausage machine, into the sausage, rusk, blood spots on fabric, on the apron, in the knickers, on the sheets. Toenails catching against the linen, whiskey on the breath, pig slaughtered, pig sighing, half carcasses hung from hooks. A puppet moves very jerkily, but not like an epileptic. Such are the directions of Jean Renoir, who knows more about dancing than the dancer Lucia Joyce knows. The elbows are held high, the wrists too, and the knees are perpetually half bent. There is no gracefulness to it, the opposite, and this poses a problem. Lucia's instinct is to form lines of beauty, to create unity of form, to act in consonance with some underlying order or method or aesthetic. But the puppet is imperfect. Stop jerking like an epileptic, not like that. The limbs flow to the ground when the string is relaxed, the head slumps to the chest. When the string is made taut again, the flow only gradually returns to the horizontal. It's the knees that cause the problem. The puppet is poorly constructed. It doesn't joint in the way God made the body. It's perfectly possible for a puppet's knees to go in reverse, like a dog's. It has a characteristic angularity on rising that is hard to recreate. Not impossible. Perhaps a puppet can be captured first during its rising, but then the real woman can take its place and perform its dance, waiting at the end for the real puppet to be brought off. A brief cut and the seams stitched and the effect is created. Easier certainly than bending the knee back on itself, the elbows and the neck. This is not about ease. Try again. Relax the joints, relax the ligaments, relax the things that we know, the expectations. Relax the self. Let it bend back. Relax into it. Relax. Not possible when you're so tense. It's not that bad. Relax and enjoy it. The knees won't work against themselves, but they can be put to the side to give the impression of inversion, and so the spine laid straight, and the neck in contraposition. Place the limbs both on the same side, both left, 
like an Egyptian in an exhibition receiving the benediction of an animal-headed Jesus. All the rights wrong. Much better. Wonderful. That's it. That's it. Good. Good girl. Pig squealing, blood sausage, weight crushing out the breath, the bar, the car, the ack emerging from the sinuses, organs in jars, panting horses at the last race, 4.30. Are you getting all this? No, the lighting is wrong. All wrong. Go again. This time is too much like the last time, too similar, trying too hard for something lost, aiming to recreate the absent thing, gut feeling. Right. So uh, we are running out of time. I think we're all right for a while. <laughs> we <laughs> started late. We started late, and I want to get on to Mordu, okay. uh, which is your next novel, yeah. which is coming out in December. And I believe that you people here are going to be the first people, is this right, to hear anything from Mordu? Um, yeah, I don't think I've read it out even. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, Mordu, we're... We have limited time, so you're going to get a yeah. bite-sized taster of <laughs> an extraordinary book, yeah. uh, which is a fantasy novel, which some people might think is unexpected after Lucia and Playthings, which have been um, such successful and such hardcore literary fiction, in a way, but... Uh, Mordu is very much an Alex Phoebe book as well. It explores the same territory, shall we say? Yeah, I think so. And it's also beautiful, full of wonderful sentences, extraordinary revelations yes. and epiphanies, <laughs> and again, a masterpiece in its own right and of the form which it has, where's this sentence <laughs> going? We've <laughs> broken down to prepositions. A masterpiece of the form. <laughs> <laughs> the form. Let's full stop, stop there. Yeah, that's the fantasy form, the yeah, genre. No doubt. Because um, <laughs> in a way, it is a genre book. But let's, it is, no, it's definitely I'll a genre stop. book. It is a fantasy novel, right? Yeah. For people who like fantasy. It's not one of those fantasy novels by a literary fiction person where they put an elf in it and then <laughs> essentially said, that's fantasy now. It's not like Kazuo Ishiguro's The Buried Giant. Have <laughs> you read that? Or Marlon James's book. I haven't read that. I can't really comment on it. Um, but sometimes literary fiction people do go into fantasy, um, which my feeling is, right, if you, can't, if you came to the Lucia Joyce book hoping for a historical novel in which Lucia Joyce paraded around in front of you and fell in love with uh, Francis Beckett and had a troubled life, then there is a book. Annabelle Abbs's um, uh, the, the Joyce Girl. That's pretty good. But this wasn't it. And I kind of... Uh, wanted to punish you for, for wanting that uh, book like that. Um, and now if people go from those books to the fantasy for, to Mordew with the expectation that they're going to get literary fiction, I want to punish them for that as well because I like <laughs> punishing people <laughs> for some reason, I don't know why. They're going to have to read a fantasy novel instead, right? There's this um, pejorative... Which is a good thing. There's a pejorative impression that people, particularly in literary fiction, have over genre work, right? Which is wrong. They shouldn't have that opinion, and it's a matter of upper-middle-class English taste that they even believe that there is a problem there. It's not a problem that Americans have. No one sit there thinking um, that Slaughterhouse-Five is no good because it's got Tralfamadorians in it. Um, but England, for some reason, the English, specifically the English, do have a serious problem with the boundaries between genre fiction and literary fiction, right? So this, essentially, is a... Uh, Mordew is a fantasy novel as a fantasy novel, 
but it does tend to deal with the same kind of things. It deals with powerlessness, it deals with uh, fantasy and reality, it deals with resistance, it deals with an inability to be who you are in the world because people are using you and, and destroying you in various ways. It's to do with impotency and power uh, and the abuse of power uh, in exactly the same way that Playthings and Lucia deals with them. It just does it in a way uh, that you can also enjoy as a fantasy novel. Right? The challenge for me is, is that true? Is that, can I deal with, with serious topics in a way that is both uh, genre applicable and interesting conceptually? And I think the answer to that question is yes. And we'll find out. <laughs> you won't find out in this. This is just the beginning. I'll give you the opening. But when you buy it later, just so you know, because I'm like a Tralfamadorian and I get to see the future and the past and the present all in one great... You're going to look back on this and think, do you remember that time we went to see that Alex Phoebe? There was like 10 people in the room. Now I can't get a ticket for anything he's doing. And it's just amazing. It's amazing how things turn around for people, isn't it? Now look at him. Now he's like J.K. Rowling sitting in an infinity pool right in uh, <laughs> San Francisco <laughs> while uh, Dennis Villeneuve makes the film version. Yeah, like, next time you see us, we'll both be sitting on golden thrones. We will. We'll be <laughs> shitting into golden toilets. <laughs> <laughs> Which is what it's all about. What we're aiming for. Trying to get some, some gold. <laughs> no, it's not. Okay. Um, yeah, okay, so this is the opening. The southern slums of the great city of Mordu shook to the concussion of waves and firebirds crashing against the seawall. Daylight, dim and grey through the thick overcast, barely illuminated what passed for streets, but the flickering burst of each bird flashed against the clouds like red lightning. Perhaps the day the master's barrier will fail, drowning them all. Perhaps the day the mistress would win. Out of the shadows, lit by bird death, the womb-born boy, Nathan Treves, trudged through the heavy mist. His father's old boots were too big, and his thick woolen knee socks were sodden. Every step made blisters, so he slid his feet close to the ground, furrowed them like ploughs through the living mud. He made his way out along what slum dwellers called the promenade, a pockmarked scar which snaked from the seawall to the strand, weaving between hovels lashed together from brine-swollen driftwood and decorated with firebird feathers. Behind him he left his parents and all their troubles, Though his errand was as urgent as ever, he went slowly. A dying father riddled with lungworms is pressing business, and medicine doesn't come cheap. But Nathan was just a boy. No boy runs eagerly towards fear. In his fists, Nathan twisted his pillowcase. His knuckles shone through the dirt. He was walking to the circus, that depression in the earth that all desperate some children made for, where the dead life grew larger. Here, if fortune allowed, flutes could be found, choking in the mud. The journey would take him an hour, though, at least, and there was no guarantee of anything. All around, the detritus that insulated one home from another creaked and trembled at the vibrations of the wall and the movement of vermin. Though Nathan was no baby, his imagination sometimes got the better of him, so he kept to the middle of the promenade. Here he was out of reach of the tentacled fiends, the grasping claws, and the strange, vague figures that watched from the darkness. Though the middle was where the writhing mud was deepest, it slicked over the toes of his boots and occasionally dead-like sprats were stranded on them, flicking and curling. These he kicked away, even if it did hurt his blisters. No matter how hungry he was, he would never eat dead life. Dead life was poison. The further he walked from his home, the less the relentless drumbeat of the seawall troubled his ears. There was something in the sheer volume of that noise up close which lessened the other senses and bowed the posture, so that when Nathan came gradually onto the strand, where it intersected with the promenade and led toward the circus, 
He was a little straighter than he had been, a little taller and much more alert. There were other slum dwellers here too. There was more to be alert too, both good and bad. Up ahead there was a bonfire ten feet high. Nathan stopped to warm himself. A man, scarred and stooped, splashed rendered fat at the flames, feeding them, keeping the endless rainwater from putting the wood out. On the pyre was an effigy of the mistress, crouched obscenely over the top, her legs lit with fire, her arms directing unseen firebirds. Her face was an ugly scowl painted on an iron bucket. Nathan picked up a stone and threw it. It arced high and came down, clattering the mistress, tipping her head off to one side. People came to the Strand to sell what bits of stuff they had to others who had the wherewithal to pay for them. The sellers raised themselves out of the mud on old boxes and sat with their wares arranged neatly in front of them on squares of cloth. Nathan had no coins and nothing to barter with, but if he'd had the money he could have got strings and nets and catapults and oddments of flat glass and sticks of meat, don't ask of what. He hadn't anything except his pillowcase and the handkerchief in his pocket, so he stopped, looked, and joined the other desolate children, eyes to the floor, watching out for movement in the living mud. They slipped and slid their ways down, never down. He didn't recognise any of the others, but he wasn't trying to. It was best to keep your distance and mind your own business. What if one of them took notice and snatched whatever was in your bag on the way home? There were some coming back, bags wriggling, others bags still, but heavy, and a few with nothing, tears in their eyes too cowardly, probably, to venture deep enough into the mud. Nathan could have stolen from those that had made a catch, grabbed what they had and ran, but he wasn't like that. He didn't need to be. As he got closer, the itch pricked at his fingertips. It knew the itch, when and where it was likely to be used, like the mouth knows to water when food is near. And it wasn't far now. Don't spark, not ever. His father used to stand over him when Nathan was very small, serious as he wagged his finger. And Nathan was a good boy. But even good boys do wrong now and again, don't they? Sometimes it's hard to tell the difference between good and bad anyway, between right and wrong. His father needed medicine, and the itch wanted to be used. The strand widened, the street vendors became fewer. Here was a crowd, nervous, a reluctant semicircular wall of children nudging and pushing and stepping back and forwards. Nathan walked towards where they weren't, where there weren't so many backs, and shouldered his way through. He wasn't any keener than the others, he wasn't any braver, but none of them had the itch. And now it was behind his teeth and under his tongue, tingling. It made him impatient. The wall was three or four deep and it parted for him, respecting his eagerness, or eager itself to see what might become of him. He was through and, itch or no itch, he stood with the others at the edge for a moment. In front was a circle marked by the feet of the children who surrounded it large enough so that the faces on the other side were too small to make out, but not so large that you couldn't see that they were there. The ground gave way and sloped, churned up, down to a wide, mud-filled pit in which some stood knee-deep at the edges, waist-deep further out. At the distant middle, they were up to their necks, eyes shut, mouths upturned, fishing in the writhing thickness by feel. Those in the middle had the best chance of finding a fluke, the complexity of the organisms generated by the living mud, it was said, was a function of the amount of it gathered in one place, while those near the edge made do with sprats. Nathan took a breath and strode down the slope, the enthusiasm of the itch dulling the pain of his blisters until he could barely feel them. When he had half walked, half slid his way to the shallows, he clamped his pillowcase between his teeth 
first to protect it from getting lost, but also, later, to stop dead life finding its way into its mouth. The mud was thick, but that didn't stop it getting past his socks and into his shoes. He had to think hard not to picture a new-spawned dead life writhing between his toes. Deeper, and there were things brushing his knees, some the size of a finger, moving in the darkness. Then, occasionally, the touch of something seeking, groping, flinching away by reflex. There was nothing to fear, this he told himself, since whatever these things were, they had no will and would be dead in minutes, dissolving back into the living mud. They meant no harm to anyone. They meant nothing. When the mud was up to his waist, he turned back to the way he had come. The circle of children jostled and stared, but no one was paying him particular attention, nor was there anyone near him. The itch was almost unbearable. His father said never to use it, never use it. Couldn't be clearer, never, finger wagging. So Nathan reached into the mud and fished with the others. Flutes could be found. He had seen them, self-sustaining living things. If he could hatch, catch hold of one, then he wouldn't have to betray his father. He moved his hands, opening and closing through the mud, the sprats slipping between his fingers. There was always a chance. Above, as he stared upward and concentrated on the things below the surface, the slow spiral of the glass road showed as a spider's web glint that looped above him, held in the air by the magic of the master. Nathan, if Nathan turned his head and looked from the side of his eyes, it became clearer, a high pencil line of translucence leading off to the master's manse. What did the master think of this place? Did he even know it existed? There, Nathan grabbed at a wrist's thickness of something and pulled it above the surface. It was like an eel, brown, grey, jointed with three elbows. Its ends were frayed and it struggled to be free. There was the hint of an eye, the suspicion of gills, what might have been a tooth, close to the surface. But as Nathan held it, it lost its consistency, seeming to drain away into the mud from each end. No good. If it had held, he might have got a copper or two from someone. Its skin good for glove making, the bones for glue. But it was gone, dissolving into its constituents, unwilling or unable to retain its form. Now the itch took over. There was only so much resistance a boy can muster, and what was so bad, they needed medicine, and he either blacked his eyes or made a fluke. Wasn't this better? He glanced surreptitiously to both sides and put his hands beneath the mud. He bent his knees, and it was as easy as anything, natural as could be. He simply scratched, and the itch was released. It sent a spark down into the living mud, and, with the relief of the urge, pleasure of a sort, and a faint blue light that darted into the depths. Nothing happened for a moment. The relief became a slight soreness, like pulling off a scab. But then the mud began to churn, the churning bubbled, the bubbling thrashed, and then there was something between his hands, which he raised. Each fluke is unique. This one was a bundle of infant limbs, arms, legs, hands, feet, a tangle of wriggling living parts. When the children in the circle spied it, there went up a gasp from those nearest. It was a struggle to keep his grip, but Nathan took his pillowcase from between his teeth and forced the fluke into it. He slung it over the shoulder, where it kicked and poked and whacked him in the back as he trudged in the rain back to the shore. That's really Thank you very much. Historic, it's a historic moment. <laughs> Let's hope so. Let's hope so indeed. Thank you for listening. I hope you'll join us again soon.